In this episode, we interview Dr. Steven Stilianos. Dr. Stilianos serves Columbia University as the Rudolf N. Schulinger Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics and Chief Division of Pediatric Surgery. He is currently the Surgeon-in-Chief of the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, New York Presbyterian. A graduate of Rutgers University and the New York University School of Medicine, Dr. Stilianos completed his general surgery training at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. He subsequently spent two years as the trauma fellow at the Kiwanis Pediatric Trauma Institute in Boston and then completed his formal pediatric surgery training at Boston's Children's Hospital. Dr. Stilianos joined the faculty of Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Children's Hospital of New York in 1992. He organized and directed the 50-member team of physicians and nurses who separated conjoined twins in 1993, 1995, 2000, and 2020. These conjoined twin separations attracted the attention of the national media, including Dateline, NBC, CBS, 48 Hours, and Fox News. Throughout the years, Dr. Stilianos has served as chairman of the Trauma Committee for the American Pediatric Surgical Association. He has authored the APSA position paper supporting all measures to reduce the toll of firearm violence in children. He also served as a co-principal investigator of the U.S. Department of Health, Maternal and Child Health Bureau's grant to APSA, Partnership for Development and Dissemination of Outcome Measures for Injured Children. Currently, Dr. Stilianos is a Site Verification Officer for the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma and was recently elected to serve in the American Pediatric Surgical Association Foundation's Board of Directors. He is also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery Case Reports, Associate Editor of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery, and served on the executive board as a founding member of the Pediatric Trauma Society. Dr. Stilianos recently received the prestigious American Pediatric Surgical Nurses Association's 2016 Championships Award and the American Trauma Society's 2016 New York State Trauma Medical Director of Distinction. And most importantly of all, Dr. Stilianos and his wife Joanne are proud first-time grandparents to their grandson Nico. In this episode, we discuss what it was like to lead a team who separated conjoined twins, how Dr. Stilianos handles leadership in the OR, and his experience at the epicenter of COVID-19 in New York City. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. I am super excited today to have my dear family friend, Dr. Stephen Stilianos on the show with us. Steve, how are you? Really well, Peter. Caleb, great to join you today. Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Awesome. So Steve, for all of our listeners, um, would you mind giving us a little bit of a background on your current leadership roles and what you feel were the formative experiences that led you to the position where you are now? Well, I hold two key positions in my current uh, job. Um, I'm a faculty member, full-time faculty member at Columbia University, and, and, and there I serve as the division chief for pediatric surgery, which is a piece of the large department of surgery at the university. 
Um, I have six faculty members um, and we uh, uh, do all of our work here at the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. That's a good segue into the hospital part of things, which is under the umbrella of New York Presbyterian Hospital. And there I'm the, I serve as the surgeon in chief, which is the administrative chief of all things uh, surgical. I want to ask you a question about surgery because that's something I'm interested in going into. And I know one of the things that you've done is a lot of conjoined twin surgeries. And so I want to take us back to 1993 when you did your first one. Can you kind of tell us about what happened? What, what were the patients? Can you tell us a little bit about that first conjoined twin surgery? Well, sure. It's exciting to to think back to that time is very nostalgic for me because uh, that was the opposite end of my career. That was the beginning. I was a brand new attending at Columbia University. Uh, it was a chance for me to return home after being away for four years doing my fellowships in uh, pediatric trauma and pediatric surgery in Boston Children's. And while I was at Boston Children's, my, my mentor, my boss there was... Uh, uh, was an expert in pelvic reconstructive work, and he had separated several sets of conjoined twins prior. So uh, I, I had a familiarity with the concept, but here I was as a first year attending, literally I'd been here about three months. Uh, and uh, my, my boss at the time, Dr. Peter Altman at Columbia, took me into an exam room and said, I have a patient I would like you to see. And there were these just gorgeous uh, twins, of course, conjoined twins who were uh, brought to New York by uh, an organization called Healing the Children, uh, who, who do foster medical care. And they were looking for someone who'd be interested in um, helping these babies. And uh, as Dr. Altman was uh, speaking with um, that organization and the foster mom, I was, you know, going through a whole list of uh, this is the test we needed to do. This is how we should do it. This is who we need to get on the team. And we went outside. Um, he said, what do you think? And I didn't know if he wanted a generic answer, like, you know, that's cool. Or did he want a plan? So I said, I might as well give him a plan. And I just rattled off the next 10 steps I thought we needed to do. And he looked at me, paused for a second. And he said, okay, they're yours get it done, and I'll support you every step of the way. And that's pretty much how it happened. Um, and um, it was about a six or seven month lead into the day of separation. And it went, uh, it went spectacularly. And I was hooked. I was hooked. And the more you read about conjoined twins, the more fascinating it is to, to read about their history and also to read about the medical uh, advances that are needed to, to take care of them. So it was a great moment. So in those six to seven months that you were planning the surgery, what was kind of going through your mind and how did you approach this, um, this problem that you were, you were tackling for the first time in your career? Yeah, well, the most important thing I think for all surgeons is to try to uh, separate the emotion of the event from the facts and when, when you're looking at any complex problem, uh, including conjoined twins, the first thing you need to do is define the challenge in front of you. 
And so that's with a, with a whole host of imaging studies and endoscopy studies. We got a full inventory of what they shared, how many organs they had, and then you begin to define the expectations for the family or the representatives for the family is one, can you separate them? Uh, two, can you separate them and expect to get two survivors? Or the very difficult one, which would be, yes, we can separate them and get one survivor, but um, the second one uh, cannot. And each one of those is an entire discussion filled with ethical and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, very complex uh, situations. Um, so during those months, we did the, the anatomic workup and, and as well, we put in tissue expanders, which are lit literally um, balloons that are put under the skin and slowly inflated. Because once you separate these babies, there's a big, big wound that needs to be closed on each one of them. And so um, doing that investment of tissue expansion is, uh, is very worthy. So for that first operation, was it pretty clear that you could be successful and, and you knew you could could have a positive outcome or was there some doubt in your mind and maybe your team's mind as far as the outcome? Yeah, I, I think it was a blessing for us that th these were babies that were very, very strong and they shared none of, let's say, vital organs. Their, their hearts and lungs were separate, their brains, their, their, their liver, everything was you know, in good shape and healthy but they were conjoined at the pelvis. And in the pelvis, it was where everything comes together, your, your intestinal tract, your urinary tract, and your reproductive organs are all in the pelvis and they were all shared. So this was a great technical challenge to come out with two functional babies. We weren't afraid of their, of their uh, of their life that we didn't think that they had anything that was going to jeopardize their lives unless there were problems in the operating room. But it was the functional outcome that we were after. And because these girls, um, you know, were separated 25 years ago, 26 years ago, we have that length of time to, to see that we actually did a pretty good job that day because not, they began, you know, they walked, they um, uh, began to menstruate at the right time. And, and Rosa, I'll call Rosa, she's had two babies. And that's, that's almost unprecedented in someone who was conjoined in that, in that orientation to then carry two pregnancies to near term. Uh, it, it's, it was, it's so exciting. And uh, she gave birth here for both of those babies and I attended her births. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a very proud moment, but yeah, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a fear for their lives. We, we wanted to hit just a home run on, on them and get them all functional. And um, we were able to do that. And it was, it, it took a team. It took an entire team with many experts in surgery and nursing and respiratory therapy, anesthesiology, intensive care, and everybody just brought their A game for these girls. and. Um, yeah, it worked. So I, I want to ask uh, two questions and you can feel free to answer them separately. Or if combine I remember, them. if I can well, remember to. Yeah. They're, they're, okay. they're short questions. <laughs> um, the first one is, what was it like to be at the head of that team? 
at the, at the beginning of your career too, because I imagine it could be a very intimidating, but also a very motivating experience. And then the second question kind of goes into thinking about um, what you've been saying, it, it, where it's very dependent on like how the conjoined twins are connected. So how did your experiences in the subsequent surgeries that you've done in 1995 and in 2000 and, in, and recently in 2020, how have they differed? How has it challenged you and your growth as a leader and as a surgeon? Well, um, great questions. I have, I have a feeling I'm going to be saying that often. So if I don't say it, I still think they're great questions. It's okay. I won't take uh, it personally. You know, um, I think um, uh, youth, uh, exuberance, wanting to show what you can do. Um, I think that those were the dominant emotions at the time. And I was very confident that I knew what to do. Uh, I knew how to do it. I knew who the right people were to assemble on the team. But I think it's only in retrospect that you um, actually think about the, you know, being, being given that, that challenge and being given that uh, privilege to lead a team where everybody was your senior. And many had been my professors in, when I had been here at Columbia as a general surgery resident. So yeah, I didn't think very much about it. Um, at the time, um, I will say there was a, a fair amount of press coverage for, for that separation and then the subsequent, their recovery and, and their growth. And um, yeah, I think the, the team did notice that the youngest guy on the team got a lot of airtime. And that was a little interesting. Um, you had to navigate that a little bit very carefully, but um, I, I always shared my appreciation. Uh, I didn't look for the lime, limelight. I just wanted to separate those girls. Um, so that was very, very, very exciting. Uh, and it was so gratifying and it was catapulting. Um, I think others wanted me to succeed. So they were taking care of me as I was taking care of the girls. Now that I'm a senior attending, uh, and I'm, we're separating twins, I'm playing a completely different role, which is I'm taking care of the team while the team is taking care of the, of the girls. It's a nice evolution. It's um, uh, the way it should be, and it, it conjures up different emotions, but um, it's all based on team. It's all based on expertise. It's all based on commitment. Uh, and trying to let the, um, the emotions uh, be on the sidelines. Now, what was the second question? I, I think you asked the difference, that, the difference of how they're connected. Well, it was, it was more of like, how, how has each subsequent one taught you a lesson in your own leadership? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a, a, an, an evolution. It happens whether you're, uh, you know, acknowledging it or not, it just, it, it just happens. And the, the trust that people develop when you have a couple of victories in your youth is, uh, that's what I meant about how it catapulted my career. It wasn't because of the press coverage or the television coverage. That was, uh, that, that, that wasn't it. It was, uh, it was earning the trust uh, of of your colleagues and that that age doesn't really matter that they'll come to you because they trust you and that 
had a lot to do with my earning my trust very early on in my career. Uh, and I'm so thankful for that. So I want to ask about the press coverage a little bit. Okay. So I'm interested in, in performance and performing at your best. And I imagine, you know, being somebody who's younger and performing such a complex operation, you were probably already, you know, high stress level going into this, and then you're getting media attention before you perform the operation. Can you take us through your mindset, getting the media attention and, and getting all the press related to the surgery? Did it affect you or you think, you know, you were just so confident in your skills that you were able to fall up, fall back on that and not let it affect you at all? Uh, yeah, there, there were phases because of the, the um, we allowed the media to be part of the journey of those twins before they were separated. So, you know, at that point, you're, you are working on the confidence of uh, knowing what the technical challenge was, as well as knowing the composition of your team, we were we were confident that we were going to have a, a a good day. But he acknowledged that there always can be unexpected findings. That's just the nature of of surgery. Uh, so we were cautiously optimistic and tried to portray that um, uh, to the media. Um, I think during the surgery, um, you really are focused on the task at hand. It, it, it wouldn't have mattered who was in the room as long as they were quiet. Uh, it, it didn't matter. And then after when things really did work out very, very well, it was easy to go to the podium and represent the team and give the praise to the team members for everything that, that they had accomplished. So I think that experience went through different phases. Again, it, I, I don't think that age or number of years of being an attending matter if you can get the job done. And I, I think probably, um, you know, an analogy might be an athlete. You know, I don't think Derek Jeter cared very much that he was a rookie shortstop. You know, he was rookie of the year uh, and he showed everybody who he was. And so I'm not trying to say that there's any analogy between me and Derek Jeter, but I'm just using the analogy of, you know, a young athlete can get the job done. They're on the field. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's, that's how it was. So you alluded to that, the fact that some things didn't really go as you planned. And I want to ask you to take us through what was going through your mind when you were either in the OR and something unexpected came up or when you were doing your pretests and you something didn't go as, as you were hoping. Yeah. Well, I think that's a surgeon lives with the unexpected uh, every day um, with the, the resolution of imaging these days and the, the skills of the pathologist to look at biopsies. There's a lot of the uncertainty is removed prior to operations. That That's Really, one of the jobs of a surgeon is to think of all the scenarios that could occur, not just the one that looks like it's going to be the most obvious, but, you know, have a plan for this, for that, and for the other. And therefore, when they occur, you pivot instantaneously and you're ready. When you're separating conjoined twins, I think there's an added factor of there could be a complexity and there could be an orientation that could catch you by surprise. Um, uh, but that's when you show your stuff. You know, I, I often will tell 
um, our residents, our surgical residents, that you're not defined by adverse events or you're not defined by the unexpected. You're defined by the response to it. And that's when you have to keep your head the clearest. That's when you have to keep your focus like a laser beam and you have to get the kid out of trouble. And uh, I think that that's been um, a staple of how I practice and how I teach is that these things are going to occur to think that they're not, then you're, then you're foolish, but um, it's how you respond. And it even happened during the twin separation. There were some events that occurred that needed immediate pivoting. Uh, and um, yeah, you just keep your cool. So I think one thing that, that nobody expected this year was a pandemic. And that's kind of what we want to get into in the second half of this discussion. And I know you're in New York, you're, you're in a center where it, it was hit the hardest at the very beginning, and I'm sure it affected you and, and your workplace. So were there lessons that maybe you learned from being a surgeon and, and experiencing unexpected things that helped you early in the pandemic? Uh, what, do you, what do you think some of the things are that, that helped you well, it was, um, it, it certainly was unprecedented. It, it, you, you couldn't look back to the last pandemic and say, how, how did that go? Uh, th this was something that was so uh, foreign and disruptive to, to everyone around us, but to the, to the running of a children's hospital. And the fact that the, that, that the, that the force we were fighting was so invisible uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't a gloomy, cloudy day. The earth wasn't shaking, but uh, everyone on earth was shaking. And it was, um, it was very, very unusual. I think surgeons are used to making split second decisions. I think as I've evolved into my administrative role, sometimes my, my surgical side comes out and says, boy, we make decisions achingly slow compared to what we do in the operating room. And I think that during the pandemic, we found um, a place between the two because we were being provided with data every six hours. And there, a decision that we had made at nine in the morning might have been obsolete by six in the afternoon. And that was what we did every day for two to three months. It was, it reminded me of how we prepare for mass casualty events, you know, the, the dreaded uh, crash at the airport or the stadium or whatever. We were having a mass casualty event that occurred every day for two months. Absolutely unprecedented. And it pushed our medical center to the absolute limits, but we came through it because people just showed what they were made of and that they did not run away from this virus, but they ran right towards the people that needed them. And at peril to their health and the health of their families, it was really, it was really unbelievable. The one emotion though, that I think I'll always remember, you always remember the good, the good parts, uh, if you can say that there were, is that we functioned very, very well, but um, the emotion of fear, uh, was was a new one for me. Um, and the fear was, here we were in a practicing medicine in an environment that is so resource rich compared to other parts of the world. I mean, you always have the expert 
that you want. You always have the test that you want at your fingertips. And I truly didn't know if we were going to have enough beds, enough ventilators, and enough staff once everybody started to get sick, which was one of the predictions, whether we were going to be able to take care of our own citizens. And I've never felt that before, not even close. And that was an emotion that, you know, once we had once we had pretty much assurance that we were on the downslope and that we had made it through without turning away one single New Yorker or anyone else who wanted us, that was, that was a great relief just to shed that fear and then be able to move on and solve problems like we had always done. But that was really something. I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget that. So do you feel like the uncertainty that you've experienced being a surgeon had really made you feel more comfortable in managing this fear that you were that you were feeling during the height of the pandemic in New York? You know, I'm not I'm not sure because in my surgical career, um, you know, you just you meet challenges with with the best skill and instincts that you that you can, as well as uh, being quick to call on your colleagues to to help to help get this this child in front of you out of trouble. So I I don't think fear is an emotion that surgeons will admit to. Certainly, it wasn't the kind of fear that I just described to you about the pandemic. I mean, we we are respectful and humbled by both the challenges of surgery as well as the rewards and the resilience of our patients. But it, this was a new fear. This was something new and it was here in the late stages of my career. It was the first time where I really didn't know if we were gonna be able to make it through and take care of everyone who needed our help. I'm so glad we did, so glad we did. So as a leader, I imagine a lot of your hospital staff was feeling the same fear. And what were some of the things that you thought helped everybody be able to move past that and, and persevere, like you mentioned, and keep, keep diving into the fight um, instead of, you know, I've heard of people, you know, quitting from the hospital they're working at or, or, you know, people, nurses were going on strike and then there was all this um, craziness, but what, do, what are some of the things that were able to help you push past that fear? Do you think? Well, it's, that's where the aspects of leadership that are, intangible uh, come out. Uh, first of all, um, your troops, they, 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 they need to see that you're there. Uh, and, and, you know, I, as well as other leaders, we were here in the medical center every day for as long as we were during normal work days for a surgeon. We were not at home sequestered and communicating with them on Zoom. So, yeah, being there and being visible and being supportive is very important. And then I think showing your team that you're solving four to five to six problems every day that directly impact how they're going to care for their patients. And that gives us a source of strength and a source of, um, and, you know, it, it amplifies the compassion that's required and it amplifies the commitment of the institution. So that's a place where 
leaders really need to show their true colors, even though they may not be at the bedside of every one of these patients, but they're helping everybody who is at the bedside of those patients to feel safe, to feel appreciated, to feel armed with as much uh, information and resources as is necessary, and then to be able to, to see when someone really needs to go home and put an arm around them and say, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. I think it's amazing that um, almost every single interview that we've ever had on this show, um, they always talk about empathy as being a very important quality for a leader. But I think, Steve, you really just kind of, you didn't just say it, but you just kind of showed what empathy looks like as a leader. So I wanted to say that I really liked your answer. Um, and, and I you know you're, you're, those who are with you um, during events like this, um, they, they may not even look for the words. They're, they're trying to read your body language. They're trying to read, uh, they're trying to read your eyes uh, and, you, and you're, the way you're conducting yourself. And so, uh, so, yeah, Peter, that's very, very spot on is that they need to know you're there. They need to see that whatever it is that you're facing, you're going to help them get through it. And, um, and at the same time, you're drawing so much energy from them, seeing them run towards a, a, a world pandemic and they're running right towards it. And they're, they're holding the hands of the patients who are breathing their last breath and whose families cannot be there with them. And they're holding a phone so that they're, so that the relatives can see you know, grandma or grandpa, or, you know, horribly a child is passing. Um, the admiration and the strength that, that, that our nursing teams showed was absolutely amazing. And, and again, unforgettable. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what it looked like. And some of the, some of the doctors I talked to called it the worst time of their lives. But the question that I wanted to kind of segue this into was, has there been, has there been any institutional changes in like the culture or the mindset from a top-down or bottom-up level within the leadership has, having gone through the experience with the pandemic? Oh, the, the, the pandemic has taught us lessons that, uh, you know, it really would be a shame if we let them fade away, you know, now that, uh, you know, we're not in the peak of the pandemic, although we don't know what's coming around the corner. We we knocked down uh, silos. We knocked down silos that probably were built inadvertently, but, um, but was a comfort zone. Um, and we worked together without any hesitation, without any turf issues, without any who's going to get the credit or who's going to get the blame. We pushed all of those distractions, which are... Uh, inadvertent and they're unfortunate and we have pushed them aside and now we look at each other very differently even though you know you're a you're a professor and a leader at Columbia University you might start thinking that you've got this all figured out but this pandemic taught me and certainly my colleagues will admit it taught us all lessons of how we were stuck in certain ways of doing things that just worked or worked pretty well. And we've pushed all of those models aside and now we are, we are aligned in a, in a stronger way. We're shoulder to shoulder 
and we're solving mundane problems with the same vigor and it's really made a huge difference. So uh, no one would ever say, let's thank the pandemic. No, uh, go away. But um, we did come out of it uh, in a much better place. So I want to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by silos. And that's something that, you know, it's a term that we hear a lot when you talk about health systems. But just for any listeners that might not know, what do you mean by breaking down those silos that we have in healthcare? Sure. Well, the complexity of every aspect of hospital care, medical care, especially in a in a children's hospital that has the, the children with the acuity here, nobody can go at this alone. However, sometimes people, you know, you can fall into the trap of thinking that, well, I'm the surgeon, I know the operating room better than anybody, so. I'll solve this problem on my own. Uh, and that's be- the beginning of the blinders going on. And if you leave the OR nurses and if you leave the anesthesiologists, you know, a little bit on the peripheral aspect of things, then you're not going to get the perspective you need to solve that problem properly. And by tearing down the silos and coming together every day to review what do we need today, what didn't go well yesterday, what, what challenges do we have in front of us, and by seven in the morning having a plan for every one of those eventualities, I would say before that was inferred, but now it's real. We do it every day. We do it in front of our constituents, and uh, it's been, it's been uh, huge. I think it just goes to show how important teamwork and also leadership is in medicine. And And the other word I would throw in there is communication. And we all think that we communicate. Surgeons always are plagued with this, with this problem of surgeons will think something and then they'll think that telepathically everyone around them knows what they mean, but they never told anybody what they meant. They just thought it, you know, I always like to kid surgeons about that. Now, no matter how well you communicate, there's always another level. And we learned that during the pandemic, there was no choice that we had to communicate perfectly. And um, yeah, it's a good feeling. It's a very, very good feeling because we've come out of it. Uh, We did a great job with those patients, the children and the adults. And now we're in a better place in terms of how we conduct um, our responses to other problems, regular hospital problems. So throughout the entirety of your experience, you've had several unique experiences, everything from separating conjoined twins, which people go their entire lives, not even getting to see that kind of procedure to managing uh, at a very high level, the response to the hardest hit place in the world, potentially, for the COVID, uh, with regard to the COVID pandemic. What are some pieces of advice that you want to leave with young medical leaders based off your experience being a leader yourself? Yeah. Well, it, it might surprise some, but um, certainly as a surgeon, um, you, you never spend a lot of time thinking about your successes and what you've done right, because that's your baseline expectation. I expect to come to work every day. I expect to give everybody here my very, very best. But, but it's a humbling profession. 
there are adverse events, there are unexpected events. Those are the things that you go over in your mind constantly. And it could be 10 years later and you can play a tape back in your head of something that happened. And then you hope that you're better for that having happened. But the, the visceral pain that that causes is what you remember and what you try to, you know, to avoid. So what I would tell uh, young um, surgeons, doctors, med students is in this profession, whether you're going to be fully clinical, whether you're going to be an academician, whether you're going to be a bench researcher, you somehow have to find a way to embrace failure and learn tremendous lessons from failure that make you instantly better than you were before. You don't, you, from success, you feel good. It's other people ask you about it. It doesn't make you better that you were really good that day. You just, you did your job. But when you fail, and you, failing may be a clinical event, failing may be a grant that wasn't funded. And you were certain, oh, this is the best grant I ever wrote. No, 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 no. Don't get stuck on that. From, from that failure will come a review, a, a critique, and take that, process it, you're instantly better. And so I would say never let failure derail your plans. Never let failure make you think that this is too difficult to do because there is no one in any meaningful leadership position uh, that hasn't failed many times. So do you have a process maybe in the OR or maybe in life of doing that, of reflecting on mistakes that you've made, or is it just taking the time to recognize that each failure is something that we can learn from and just spending the time thinking about it? I think I'll answer that in two parts. The, the, the first is what you, what you learn is to prepare and let's see what's happening. Oh, there you go. Sorry. What you, what you learn is uh, preparation and avoiding adverse events is much, much, much better use of your time than having to react every time something happens. So there is absolutely no substitute for preparation. I'll digress to a story from when I was a senior in college. Um, and I was, you know, I had my med school applications were out um, and I had a, a decent GPA. Uh, but you know what? I had never really done anything to prepare for a career in medicine. I just followed the path that people told me to do. I didn't shadow physicians. We didn't even know that term shadow back then. You know, I did nothing. And should I have been surprised that I didn't get into medical school the first time? Well, when you really process the effort, it was not a complete effort. I was ill-prepared and I vowed at that moment, I was 21 years old, that I was never going to be unprepared for any part of my journey the rest of my life. And I tried to stick to that. So preparation is so, so vital. And the other is when these events occur, you're going to have that immediate reaction to fix it. And then begins uh, uh, almost an involuntary playback of that tape in your mind over and over. I've heard some people call it rumination, that you literally ruminate. You just play that thing on a 
automatic tape. And each time trying to find one place where you could have gotten there a moment faster, or you could have used a different approach or something to say to that person indirectly that um, I'll never let that happen again to another child. Um, and that's where you grow. That's how you grow. So your, your story of applying to medical school and not getting is very remarkably similar to mine. And I had a very similar thought process when I had got my first set of rejections mm -hmm. and no acceptances. Um, and then one of my previous mentors had told me something that stuck with me forever. And I've shared it on the show before, but it's prior proper preparation prevents poor performance. There you go. Um, it's my favorite thing to share on the show all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I want to I want to close out this interview with our last question, which is more of a fun question, which is what are two of your favorite books that you would recommend to young medical leaders? Oh, that was uh, I, I was happy to to think that that was coming. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I have two different one is uh, one is called Farsighted. It's by an author named uh, Stephen Johnson. And it it's a book. It's not that long, but it's a book all about. Um, decision-making and how to maximize that process. And I think that that was, that's, that was really a very helpful, helpful book. I wish I had read it, you know, 30 years ago, but um, so that's one, write that one down, Farsighted by Stephen Johnson. And the other one is not a, a, a self-help book. It was actually entertaining, but it was also historical called The Splendid and the Vile, which was by Eric Larson. And it's about Winston Churchill, who, you know, is always going to go down as a as a as a charismatic and effective leader. Um, you, not everyone could agree with everything that he did, but he was special. And to read that book about how he handled the the worst year in, you know, British history in the in the last century was absolutely awe inspiring. So, how about if I leave you with those two books? You know, my my father is a big Churchill fan, and and I picked up some of some of his his knowledge on Churchill. So I'll definitely look into that. And Peter actually lives on Churchill Street, which I I was happy to, <laughs> which I was happy to bring up when when Peter moved there. So so that's an awesome book to leave us with. You know, most history most history books on Churchill are a thousand pages. They're they're intimidating, and this one is uh, this one also has an entertainment value in that it's it's history. But uh, they wove in uh, the characters of the time and his his daughter and and, and his his cabinet members and their personality. So it was, it was entertaining, but it was quite a history lesson. Well, so thanks so fun. much, thanks so much, Dr. Stilianos, for coming on. I definitely enjoyed this interview, Peter. What about you? Always, it's always an, it's always a fun time getting to talk to Steve. I remember the last time that we went to dinner it was a really good time. Last time I was in New York. Well, guys, I, I love what you're doing because, um, again, when when you when you think about how do you grow to be a leader, there's something about when you want to take on a task, you want to contribute to the task. You don't want to be a bystander just kind of going along. I think a lot of leaders will look back to how they were in grade school or high school or whatever. And they said, well, if I'm going to do it, you kind of rise to the leadership roles, even that. And you two have done the same thing. You, you could be great classmates to your friends by saying hello every day and having a cup of coffee with them. But also you could do these 
these podcasts and help so many of your classmates and, and people you may never meet. And I, I think you guys are spot on and I encourage you. And um, uh, it was a privilege to be on with you. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.